We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. go episode 321 of the Al Galdi podcast it is Tuesday May 24th 2022 and we have a lot to get into with a lot coming on this Tuesday if you are a commanders fan or at least are interested in the commanders buckle up because we are all about to take command with a variety of things regarding the commanders. So Tuesday is day two of the commander's first batch of OTA practices this offseason. Not all of these OTA practices are open to the media, but Tuesday's OTA practice is open to the media, and we expect to hear from various people with slash on the commanders on Tuesday. So there will be a good bit of, if not news, then certainly commander's content on Wednesday's installment of the Al Galdi podcast. Tuesday will be the day on which we, for the first time, will see Carson Wentz practice as a commander's quarterback. Perhaps we'll even hear from Wentz as well. But someone who we do not expect to see or hear from on this Tuesday is Terry McLaurin. We on Monday night had multiple reports that Terry is not attending voluntary on-field workouts for the commanders. And that's what these OTA practices are, voluntary, until he gets a contract extension. Now, it already had been reported that Terry McLaurin would be doing this, but we on Monday night got further clarity. Commanders insider Nikki Javala of the Washington Post on Monday night tweeted the following, quote, as he awaits a new contract, commanders wide receiver Terry McLaurin did not attend the start of OTAs on Monday, according to multiple people with knowledge of the situation. He has not attended workouts at all since the conclusion of the draft. When the offseason began April 18th, McLaurin participated in everything but on-field work. That changed after the draft, end quote. So yeah, uh, this Terry McLaurin contract thing, now even more of a thing, although I still do maintain that we are not yet at the point of panic. Uh, If there's not a contract extension for Terry by the start of Commander's training camp, then you can panic, okay? Then you have permission to panic. 
Uh, you can flip out, in fact, if you like. But we still have more than two months until the start of Commander's training camp. Uh, that said, heck yeah, it would be nice if the Terry McLaurin extension was done already with him going into the final season of his rookie contract. So we have this Commander's OTA stuff, and then we have the stadium stuff. Uh, Monday was a wild day in the Commander Stadium saga. So many reports, so much to sort through regarding a new stadium for the Commanders. If you are confused, you are forgiven. Uh, but one of my mantras for the Al Galdi podcast is, I follow sports so that you don't have to, okay? I do the work so that you don't have to. And so next segment, I'll try to make sense of everything, and I mean everything, that was out there on Monday. There were a lot of things out there on Monday. Uh, Monday may well go down as the day on which Virginia won the sweepstakes, although the sweepstakes may not be exactly over. Uh, Nothing, as you'll hear, is a done deal, but the wind does certainly continue to blow in the direction of Virginia. More specifically, Prince William County, Virginia. I have a lot to say about that, as well as about Washington, D.C., seemingly being all but done. What happened with D.C., which for the longest time has been where so many have wanted the team's next stadium to be. Heck, Dan Snyder himself, the Danny himself, has wanted the team's next stadium to be in D.C. Uh, Also on the show, I will discuss something that came out on Monday. Uh, This was a very sad thing. New information on the death of former Washington quarterback Dwayne Haskins. I will talk Nationals. Uh, They on Monday night welcome back their former shortstop, Trey Turner. And uh, the Nats got wrecked by Trey and his current team, the National League leading Los Angeles Dodgers. 10-1 was the final at Nationals Park. Remember when the Nats beat the Dodgers in that great five-game National League Division Series in October 2019? Uh, Yeah, that feels like a long time ago. Uh, And I'll talk Orioles. Uh, They on Monday night won again a fourth win in five games. This time, a 6-4 win at the Major League-leading New York Yankees. Big game for Ramon Arias. You cannot stop Ramon Arias. You can only hope to contain him. Uh, O's also got another solid start from Jordan Lyles. I tell you, the O's are playing well. Anything is possible right now. Heck, Kudis Wahab has returned to Georgetown. That has happened. Yeah, did you see that? It's true. Wahab is back at G-Town. A big announcement from the Hoyas on Monday night. Wahab has transferred back to Georgetown off having transferred from Georgetown to Maryland in April 2021. He played for the Hoyas for his freshman and sophomore seasons. Wahab played a big role in that Georgetown stunning run to win the 2021 Big East Tournament. His time with the Terrapins uh, did not go so well. Uh, Wahab with the Terps was a major disappointment, but he now is back at uh, Big Man U. Uh, Now is back with Hoyas head coach Patrick Ewing. I think that this is totally the right move for Kudis Wahab. I, this past season, said that I wondered if Wahab regretted leaving Georgetown. Well, now we know that he did regret leaving Georgetown And he's back with the Hoyas. The prodigal son has returned. The prodigal Hoya has returned as the legendary play-by-play voice of the Hoyas. Rich Votkin likes to say, Hoyas win. Hoyas win! 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 Yes, Rich Votkin, Hoyas win. Even as a Maryland fan, I can say 
that the Hoyas win. Uh, Georgetown, by the way, is like completely remaking its team this offseason. The Hoyas have lost and gained, it feels like, about 400 transfers this offseason. But I guess that's what happens when you go 0-20 in Big East games as the Hoyas did this past season. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Lots of emails off our conversation on Monday's show, episode 320, regarding that report on Saturday afternoon from USA Today Sports, which had multiple anonymous quotes from NFL owners saying that Dan Snyder is in danger of being ousted as owner of the Commanders. Not that this is going to happen this week, but the writer of the report, NFL columnist Jared Bell quoted one NFL owner as having said, quote, we are counting votes, end quote. Uh, That's a reference to any ouster of Dan as commander's owner needing the approval of 24 of the NFL's 32 teams. That is the magic number, 24. Email from Jose Menendez. Dear Al, here is an additional thought concerning the financial motives behind the NFL making Dan sell. No matter how the other owners feel about Snyder and wanting to boot him, I bet that they won't do anything until after the Broncos are sold. Having two teams on the market at the same time would diminish the value of both, and that would also cost the other owners money. So unless something new and proven comes up, or one of the existing accusations is proven so that Dan becomes so toxic that he has to go immediately... I'm thinking Snyder has a stay of execution (laughs) until the Broncos are sold. I think he has that long to stabilize his situation. Thanks, and I love the show. Well, thank you for that, Jose. An excellent point by you. You may well be right with what you said. Uh, The Broncos are owned by the Pat Bolin Trust. Uh, The Broncos were valued at $3.75 billion by Forbes last August, but I know that there's a belief that the Broncos could be sold for $4 billion. Uh, The Broncos situation, by the way, has been a mess. The Broncos were officially placed on the market in February after years of legal disputes, including a family lawsuit in 2019. So Pat Bolin died at the age of 75 in June 2019, after a long battle with Alzheimer's, his two oldest daughters in September 2019 filed a lawsuit challenging the validity of the trust. Yeah. And you thought that would happen with the Redskins after the death of Jack Ken Cook was not ideal. Uh, email from Robert Krakauer. Galdi, I have grown to despise the slow trickle of stories that have come out since the initial sexual harassment allegations. If there is one lesson I took from the 2019 Nats, it is to also try to keep expectations low, at least in sports, as a defense mechanism. It is similar to my disdain for the weather people. So many times they called for snow, and I did not do my homework, only to be rudely confronted with this error first thing in the morning when I looked out my window. The expectations were high, as was my anger, at being disappointed. When I heard the Snyder story from the weekend, I was annoyed and angered by the mere suggestion that I should get my hopes up for him to be removed. No, no, no. That evil swine will never be removed, and anyone who hints at the possibility is setting themselves up for more disappointment, as if commies fans do not have enough of that to go around. I refuse to fall into that trap again. And then Robert signs his email as wounded commies fan. Uh, Thank you for the email, Robert. I hear you, man. Well, 
If you or someone who you care about has been wounded due to the negligence of someone else, you should contact the law firm of Paulson and Nace. Paulson and Nace is a Washington, D.C.-based family law firm that handles medical malpractice, personal injury, birth injury, and consumer protection cases, offering aggressive advocacy for victims in Washington, D.C. and West Virginia. The law firm of Paulson and Nace is always there for you. Paulson and Nace can help your family make difficult decisions, and Paulson and Nace is excellent at what it does. Paulson and Nace has recovered millions of dollars for the sick and injured. I've known the Naces for 25 plus years. Chris Nace is a past president of the DC Trial Lawyers. Matt Nace is a member of the board of the DC Trial Lawyers. It's very simple. If you have a case, contact Paulson and Nace. If you feel that you've been wronged, if you think that you've been wronged but aren't sure, call Paulson and Nace and schedule a no obligation appointment. You can call Paulson and Nace at 202-902-7611. That's 202-902-7611. When you call, make sure that you tell Paulson and Nace that Al Galdi sent you. Schedule a no obligation appointment by calling 202-902-7611. You can also visit paulsonandnace.com. That's paulsonandnace.com. And don't forget to tell Paulson and Nace that Al Galdi sent you. Paulson and Nace, when tragedy happens, let the family of Paulson and Nace take care of your family. So this week for the Commanders is supposed to be a football week, and it is a football week with the team conducting its first batch of OTA practices Monday through Thursday. But we, over the last few days now, have had several items on non-football stuff with the Commanders because, as you likely know, with our football team, it's never just about football. Uh, we on Saturday had the USA Today Sports Report featuring multiple anonymous quotes from NFL owners saying that Dan Snyder is on thin ice as owner of the team, now known as the Commanders like never before. And we on Monday had a significant day regarding the Commanders stadium search. So we on Monday afternoon had multiple reports that the Commanders have purchased about 200 acres of land in Woodbridge, Virginia, for a little more than $100 million. Uh, Woodbridge, Virginia, as most of you listening know, is in Prince William County, Virginia. The key word in these reports was purchased, as in the land has been bought, although procured was used as well. Well, we on Monday night had a report from Commander's Insider Sam Fortier of the Washington Post that a Virginia state senator said that a team lobbyist told that Virginia state senator that the commanders acquired an option to purchase the land, not the land itself, that the commanders have acquired what's known as an option to purchase agreement. And that report was then confirmed by other reporters. So there was some confusion about what exactly had happened. Now, the purpose of the land purchase or the option to purchase the land is clear. And that purpose is for the land to be the site of a new commander stadium and surrounding area. An NFL team that is wanting to build a new stadium doesn't spend a hundred plus million dollars or potentially spend a hundred plus million dollars on land for the land not to be for the purpose of building a new stadium, especially when that team may be having a cash flow problem. The reports on Monday night did make sense, though, because the various reports from Monday afternoon on the land purchase slash procurement 
all included some version of the following. Yeah, the commanders are getting this land in Woodbridge, Virginia for a little more than $100 million, but that doesn't mean that Maryland and Washington, D.C. are out of the sweepstakes. Uh, ESPN Commanders insider John Keim, who broke the story, wrote in his report regarding the land that, quote, one source called it the team's preferred site for a new stadium, but other options remain open, end quote. Commanders insider J.P. Finley of NBC Sports Washington on Monday afternoon tweeted, quote, This was made clear to me. Nothing is a done deal. Virginia legislature makes next move and don't count out Maryland slash PG County either. A return to actual D.C. sounds remote, but not finished. End quote. Commanders insider Ben Standig of The Athletic on Monday afternoon reported that per a source, quote, the team is still looking at multiple locations across Maryland, Virginia, and D.C., end quote. Stephen Wino of the Associated Press on Monday afternoon reported that the commanders, per a person with knowledge of the situation, quote, are still considering other locations in the District of Columbia, Maryland, and Virginia, end quote. So clearly, the commanders on Monday wanted it out there that they are still very much welcoming offers from Maryland and Washington, D.C. The commanders wanted it out there that they are still conducting a three-way bidding war between Virginia, Maryland, and D.C. The bottom line, though, is this. As things stand right now, the commander's next stadium is going to be in Virginia. Virginia is it. And Yes, there still are things to be determined, such as how much money the state of Virginia and Prince William County are willing to commit. Uh, Virginia's legislature has been discussing creating a stadium authority that would authorize money to help pay for a new commander stadium. But in a lot of ways, Monday was the day on which the three-way battle to be where the commander's new stadium is built came to an end. To whatever extent there ever was a three-way battle. And that's the thing, and I tweeted this on Monday afternoon, it really is amazing to me that the obvious public relations home run for a new Commander Stadium, Washington, D.C., has never felt like the front runner or even had any real momentum in this stadium saga, despite Dan Snyder and so many fans having wanted the new stadium in D.C. And forget about why this is the case. The reasons are many. Forget about whether you personally have wanted the Commander's Next Stadium to be in D.C. It always has been undeniable that the obvious PR home run, what maybe has been the one ultra-popular thing that the universally despised Dan Snyder could do, has been building the Commander's Next Stadium in D.C., making it so that the home games for the NFL team, said to be based in the nation's capital, are back in the nation's capital. Uh, restoring a link to the glory days when the Redskins, of course, played their home games at RFK Stadium. And understand, I'm actually not one of these fans who think that the team's next stadium has to be in D.C. Uh, Trust me, I would love to see the team's next stadium be in D.C., but I have never thought that it's D.C. or bust. I've always thought that the team's next stadium being in Maryland or Virginia could work. It's just remarkable to me that at no point in this entire stadium saga has D.C., ever truly gotten going. And uh, keep in mind, this stadium saga started in August 2014, when Dan Snyder, in a conversation with Chick Hernandez on what was then Comcast Sportsnet Mid-Atlantic, and now is NBC Sports Washington, revealed, quote, we've started the process, end quote, 
on getting a new stadium. I mean, August 2014, that was nearly eight years ago. And at no point over the last eight years has DC ever felt like it was going to happen. You can blame Dan Snyder for a lot of things. I do not blame him for DC having never had any true momentum in this stadium saga. Uh, The lack of momentum for DC in the stadium saga has been the fault of the federal government and of DC itself. Uh, Dan Snyder has wanted the team's next stadium to be in DC. The Washington Post on February 12th, 2019, more than three years ago now, reported that Dan Snyder's first choice of location for his new stadium was the RFK Stadium site in DC. The Post hates Dan Snyder's guts, okay? Even the Post years ago said that Dan's first choice for the site of the team's next stadium was the RFK Stadium site in DC, but there have been many problems with DC. Uh, Number one, the 190-acre RFK stadium site is owned by the federal government, not by the city of DC. Number two, there are few, if any, other realistic stadium sites in DC. Number three, even if Congress did sell the 190-acre RFK stadium site to the city of DC, there still would be staunch opposition to the commander's next stadium being built in D.C. A lot of D.C. residents don't want the stadium in D.C. And number four, a number of D.C. politicians, including the D.C. mayor, Muriel Bowser, were anti-name people, were anti-Redskins people. Uh, Now, we know that that issue has been taken care of, but the name debate was a problem for the team building its next stadium in D.C. for a while. But the bottom line is this, Washington, D.C. has been a pain in the butt as an option for the site of the next stadium for the team now known as the Commanders. Nothing has been or seemingly ever is easy with DC. And I'm not saying all of this to make Dan Snyder into a victim. I'm saying all of this because all of this is the truth. Now, to Mayor Bowser's credit, she does seem to want the Commanders next stadium in DC. Uh, Bowser on February 2nd, which yes, was the day on which the team announced its new name as Commanders, right? 2.2.22, put out a statement, quote, Washington's football franchise has had a storied history, and we are excited that today they will begin a new necessary chapter as the Washington Commanders. Sports mean so much to our civic pride and are an essential part of our economic engine, creating jobs and opportunities for our residents and revenue to fund essential services. But for our football team, every major sports franchise in the region calls D.C. home. The next chapter for the Washington Commanders should be a return to winning right here in D.C., End quote. (laughs) And of course, Bowser had to get in that dig at the name Redskins, but it seems to me that Bowser does want the Commander's Next Stadium in D.C. She wants that. Dan wants that. Many fans want that. But it's not happening, okay? It's not happening. Uh, Virginia is happening, most likely Woodbridge, Virginia. Now, this is not the first that we have heard of Woodbridge, Virginia as being the site for the Commander's Next Stadium. Uh, Remember what went down in late February. We, over the course of two days in late February, February 24th and 25th, had multiple reports of three potential sites for a stadium for the Commanders in the state of Virginia. Uh, The news was broken by WUSA 9 investigative reporter Eric Flack and was based on documents marked Washington Football Team Master Plan Workshop, dated 12.22.2021, and broken into three separate plans, Master Plan Site A, Site B, and Site C. Site A was in Dumfries, Virginia. Site B was in Woodbridge, Virginia. And Site C 
was in Sterling, Virginia. So this news that came out on Monday, in a lot of ways, was a continuation of what first came out in late February. But, you know, as you probably remember, the initial reaction to the Dumfries, Virginia site, was one of sheer horror. Uh, And initially, John Keim on Monday afternoon reported that the land that the commanders have purchased in Virginia is in Dumfries, Virginia. But he did then correct that the land is in Woodbridge, which is closer to the Beltway than Dumfries is. Uh, Now, and I double checked this. uh, There is electricity in Dumfries, Virginia. Uh, There is running water in Dumfries, Virginia. Uh, There are fully formed, fully evolved human beings in Dumfries, Virginia. I mean, good God, the Washington, D.C., Montgomery County, Maryland, P.G. County, Maryland, elitist reaction to these sites in Virginia, especially the Dumfries site, cracks me up. I mean, you would think that Dumfries, Virginia is Mariupol, Ukraine, with the way that Dumfries gets talked about. And understand, I live in Montgomery County, Maryland. I myself am a D.C., Montgomery County, P.G. County elitist. But geez, the way that some of Virginia gets talked about is something else. I mean, regarding Woodbridge, Virginia, is that location ideal for me personally? No. But this isn't about just me. This isn't about just people who live in D.C., Montgomery County, and P.G. County. This isn't about just people who live right near the Beltway. I've heard it said that the commander's next stadium being in Prince William County, Virginia, likely would essentially mean the end of people who live in D.C. and Maryland going to games for the team now known as the commanders. Yeah, maybe. But the commanders being in Prince William County also could mean the start. For many people living in Prince William County and Point South going to Commander's Games. Understand, the state of Virginia as of a few years ago was where most of the Redskins season ticket holders were from. I'm not sure if that's still the case, but I do know that that was the case. And when you combine that with the reality that there are a lot of Commander's fans in Southern Virginia and even in North Carolina... Well, the team's next stadium being in Woodbridge, Virginia, might open up a whole new group of people to attending games for the team as compared to the team stadium having been in Landover, Maryland since 1997, especially when you consider that the number of people from D.C. and Maryland attending games at FedEx Field certainly seems to have shrunk dramatically. You know, D.C., as everyone knows, is transient. Uh, Maryland is more and more becoming split territory in terms of commanders and Baltimore Ravens fans. The long-term play for the commanders may well be to exploit the state of Virginia as much as possible. You can't just look at the commander stadium situation through your own personal eyes. You got to think about this from the team's perspective and from a business perspective. And here's the deal, and everyone knows this. If the commanders win, if the team becomes good again, then people will go to the games, no matter where the stadium is. Uh, As for the actual stadium, did you see the renderings that the commanders have commissioned uh, for their new stadium, headquarters, and village? Uh, Commanders insider Michael Phillips of Richmond.com tweeted these out on Monday afternoon. I have to say, the renderings were impressive. Now, I know that the renderings are just renderings, but I looked at those renderings and I was like, wow, those things look pretty good. Uh, And I did say stadium headquarters and village. Remember, the plan here is for a lot more 
than just a stadium. John Kime in his report on Monday afternoon wrote the following regarding the commander's plan for this land that the team has purchased in Woodbridge. Quote, according to a source, their plans include a 60,000 seat dome stadium so it can be used throughout the year, as well as the team's practice facility, an amphitheater that seats between 15,000 and 20,000, a small indoor music arena, high-end retail shops, bars and restaurants, and residential living. The roof would be translucent and the stadium's facade could change colors. It would be white during the day and, for example, burgundy at night. End quote. And one of the renderings is of a stadium that's basically all in burgundy at night. And that rendering in particular, to me, looks sharp. I understand that these days it's fashionable to just crush everything about the commanders, okay? I totally get that, you know? I get the tendency to say with the commanders, everything's bad, everyone's terrible, okay? I understand all of that. I do. But personally, I don't think that a stadium in Woodbridge or in Prince William County, Virginia, period, is like destined for failure, You know, traffic is key. There needs to be a comprehensive and intelligent traffic plan so that the traffic going to and from games isn't so bad. Public transportation is key. Although, honestly, given how much of a mess Metro is right now, I'm not sure if public transportation matters as much as we thought it did. Uh, The area around the stadium is key, and it does sound like the commanders have grand designs for the area. And, of course, nothing is more key than the team being good. Because if the team continues to be as it has been for most of the last three decades, then it doesn't matter where the next stadium is. Nobody will want to go there. Up next, we now know more about the circumstances of the death of former Washington quarterback Dwayne Haskins. I'll address what came out on Monday after this. Well, we all want to be healthy, but it's not easy to eat healthy. And let's be honest, it's not cheap to eat healthy, especially with inflation right now. And so that's why you should try Factor. Factor is an affordable meal delivery plan that provides you with delicious and healthy food. Whether you're trying to get or stay lean or you're trying to put on muscle, Factor gets the job done and saves you hours per week in that you don't have to worry about food shopping, cooking, or doing dishes. Uh, Factor offers 30 meals per week. You can choose from a variety of new meals every week, so you'll never get bored. Each Factor meal arrives pre-prepared and ready to eat in two minutes. Yes, two minutes. You can't beat this. Trust me, I eat Factor meals. My favorites have included the Keto Chorizo Chili, the Chichimuri Pork Tenderloin, and the Santa Fe Beef Bowl. All of them delicious. And understand that Factor meals are put together by registered dietitians and expert chefs who work hand-in-hand to create meals with nutritious ingredients. You're going to love eating Factor meals and you can save $120 just by being a listener of this podcast. Here's what you do. Visit go.factor75.com slash Galdi120 and use the code Galdi120 to get $120 off. Yeah, you heard that right, $120 off. That's go.factor75.com slash Galdi120 and use the code Galdi120 to get $120 off. Give Factor a try. Eat well and save yourself time and money. Visit go.factor75.com slash Galdi120 and use the code Galdi120 to get $120 off. You got to try Factor because fitness starts with food. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate 
isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. All right. Well, I do not like doing sad topics on the show, but this is a relevant topic for the show. And the topic, unfortunately, is not just a sad topic, but a tragic topic. Uh, We on Monday got the toxicology and medical examiner's reports for the death of Pittsburgh Steelers quarterback and former Washington quarterback Dwayne Haskins, who was killed early Saturday morning, April 9th. Uh, He died due to being struck by a dump truck while he was walking on a South Florida highway. This happened around 6.40 a.m., said Florida Highway Patrol spokesperson Lieutenant Indiana Miranda on April 9th of Duane in a statement, quote, he was attempting to cross the westbound lanes of Interstate 595 when there was oncoming traffic, end quote. Uh, What had not made sense at all was what Duane was doing crossing Interstate 595 when there was oncoming traffic. That never seemed like something that a person of sound mind would do. Well, we now know a bit more about Duane's condition. Uh, He was legally drunk when he died. The toxicology report revealed that Duane had two samples showing his blood alcohol content at 0.20 and 0.24. The legal blood alcohol content limit in Florida is 0.08. So 0.20 is more than twice the legal limit, and 0.24 is three times the legal limit. Uh, There's also this. Dwayne tested positive for ketamine and norketamine, which are drugs that are used by medical professionals, but that also have been known to be used recreationally. Uh, Ketamine is used to treat depression. So for all we know, Dwayne was dealing with depression. But let's not be naive. Ketamine also is a club drug known as Special K. And know this, the Steelers told investigators that Dwayne had no mental health issues and had never made any suicidal threats. So it would appear that him having ketamine in his system was not for the purpose of treating depression. Uh, The Steelers said that Dwayne sometimes drank heavily, sometimes used marijuana, but was not known to use any other recreational drugs. Uh, The medical examiner ruled Dwayne's death an accident and as being a result of multiple blunt force injuries. So in terms of painting the picture of what happened, Uh, The Steelers told investigators that Dwayne had trained with Steelers teammates in Florida that day before going to a club and then getting into a fight with someone. Uh, Investigators at the scene found Dwayne's car and a female companion inside of the car. Uh, The investigators said that the woman told them that Dwayne had left the car on foot to try to find a gas station, 
the woman's relationship with Dwayne was not disclosed in the documents. So, you know, may well have been a friend or someone like that. Uh, but we do know that Dwayne called his wife. Uh, coming out on April 20th was audio of a 911 call on the morning of Dwayne's death. The call was from Dwayne's wife, Calabria. She called 911 concerned for Dwayne off him having been stranded on the highway looking for gas before he stopped responding to her. Uh, the whole ordeal is so tragic and sounds like such a mess. We don't know for sure who was driving Dwayne's car, but there are reports that the woman who was in Dwayne's car was passed out. So, I mean, logically, if that's true, that that woman was passed out, then presumably Dwayne was driving. So he was driving drunk and he was driving perhaps high. Uh, then you have his car running out of gas. Uh, then you have him, while drunk and perhaps high, clearly making a decision not of sound mind in crossing Interstate 595 when there was oncoming traffic, and he gets struck by a dump truck and killed. I mean, just awful. I'm not here to lecture on, you know, athletes drinking and doing drugs, okay? I mean, we over the years have glorified plenty of athletes for partying, all right? Sonny Jurgensen and John Riggins, just to name two. But here's what I will lecture on, however briefly. Uh, call an Uber. Call a cab. Get a car service. I will never understand why pro athletes who go out partying or who just go out at night insist on driving themselves. Athletes are rich. Dwayne, as an NFL player, even with him having been released by Washington before the end of his second season, had made plenty of money. What are you doing not calling an Uber or a cab or a car service? I don't get that. These athletes who get DUIs or even worse, who kill people while driving drunk and or speeding, what are you doing? What are you thinking? Not calling an Uber or a cab or a car service. It has never been easier to not have to drive yourself when you go out. And yet so many of these people continue to insist on driving themselves. You have the money, use it. I, I just, I do not understand that. You know, we also, since Dwayne's death, have learned that his parents had never met his wife, Calabria. Yeah, that has come out. Uh, his parents did not attend his funeral in the Pittsburgh area on April 22nd, said Dwayne's parents via a statement, quote, we have never met or spoken to the wife, and we didn't want our son's funeral service to be the place we met her for the first time, end quote. So the parents had never met Dwayne's wife, and in fact, in that statement, referred to her as the wife. Didn't even use her name, Calabria, called her the wife. Uh, there just is so much about all of this that is just so sad and that seemingly was so avoidable. So, you know, this is awful. This is a tragedy. Rest in peace to Dwayne Haskins. And I certainly wish nothing but the best for him and his family. Well, we on Monday night had the return of shortstop Trey Turner to Nationals Park. It was last July 30th that the Nats, in the most prominent trade of their mega sell-off, officially dealt Trey and starting pitcher Max Scherzer to the Los Angeles Dodgers. Here we are now, just about 10 months since the trade. And what do you think that Trey is thinking now? Probably, thank goodness, I'm no longer on that team. Uh, the Nats on Monday night got routed by the Dodgers 10-1 in game one of a three-game series 
end of a seven-game homestand. The Nats this season now are 14-29, and second-worst record in the majors. The Dodgers this season now are a National League best 28-13. and Trey Turner is set to be a free agent this coming offseason. I don't at all blame the Nats for trading him last July. The Nats were going nowhere with Trey Turner last season. The Nats would be going nowhere with Trey Turner this season. And he and Max brought back catcher Kate Bear Ruiz, starting pitcher Josiah Gray, and two other prospects. But boy, the Nats are bad, and boy, the Dodgers continue to be great. And I tell you, I had to shake my head when I saw the following thing on Monday. So coming out on Monday was MLB Pipeline's latest rankings of the top 100 prospects in baseball. Uh, The Nats have two of the top 100 prospects in baseball. Shortstop Brady House, number 44. Starting pitcher Cade Cavalli, number 50. Do you know that the Dodgers have six of the top 100 prospects in baseball? Yeah, six. This is despite the Dodgers having been good for years. So the Dodgers like never are picking in the top five, top 10. This is despite the Dodgers last summer having traded away two of their top prospects in Kbert Ruiz and Josiah Gray to the Nats. The Dodgers, because they are so good at drafting and developing, have six of the top 100 prospects in baseball. That's how you do it. The Dodgers may well be the single best organization in Major League Baseball. And as the Nats are in the midst of their rebuild, to me, they should be looking at an organization like the Dodgers. And the Nats should be saying to themselves, everything that team does, we need to be doing. And the Nats should be like studying the process of the Dodgers behind the scenes, the process of the Dodgers in their farm system, everything the Dodgers do, you do. Because what the Dodgers do works to the tune of making the playoffs every year and still having a great farm system. Uh, The Nats offense on Monday night was right back to being bad. Boy, it is incredible with this Nats offense this season. I've said feast or famine. I mean, I don't even know if feast or famine does this Nats offense justice. The Nats off their 8-2 win at the Milwaukee Brewers on Sunday afternoon scored a mere one run on Monday night. The Nats with their hitting can look so good one game and so bad the next game. Heck, the Nats on Monday night got perfect gamed for a while. Uh, Cesar Hernandez in the bottom of the six had a one-out double off the left center field warning track to end a perfect game bid by the Dodgers starting pitcher Tyler Anderson. Uh, Hernandez on Monday night was the Nats starting second baseman and number eight batter as Nats manager Davey Martinez again tinkered with his lineup. He had Lane Thomas as the Nats starting center fielder and number one batter as Victor Robles did not start for a third consecutive game, but the uh, lane train on Monday night, it got derailed. Uh, He went 0 for 4 with two strikeouts off, having been really good in the series at the Brewers over the weekend. Uh, The Nats' lone run in the game on Monday night came in the bottom of the ninth. Uh, Nelson Cruz had a two-out opposite field double to deep right field. Josh Bell then had a two-out RBI single to right field to cut the Nats' deficit to 10-1. So Cruz did start on Monday night despite having suffered a sprained right ankle on Sunday afternoon. Cruz on Monday night as the Nats' starting DH and number four batter, one for four. Bell on Monday night as the Nats' starting first baseman and number five batter, two for four with an RBI single and another single. Uh, Bell in the bottom of the seventh had a two-out opposite field single 
to right field on an 0-2 pitch. Uh, K-Bet Ruiz on Monday night was the Nats' number two batter for a second consecutive game, but he went 0-4. Uh, and Juan Soto on Monday night batted in the number three spot for a second consecutive game. He went 1-3 for three with a single. Uh, Soto in the bottom of the seventh had a one-out single up the middle. You know, there has been a lot of talk of Juan Soto, and he's been batting in that number two spot so much, and maybe he's just not comfortable in that number two spot, and so that may well be part of why Davey has moved Soto back down to the number three spot for each of these last two games. But, you know, looking at the Dodgers, and again, do as the Dodgers do, okay? W-W-T-D-D. What would the Dodgers do? The Dodgers on Monday night had as their top three batters in the lineup, Mookie Betts, Freddie Freeman, and Trey Turner. The three best hitters in the Dodgers lineup batted one, two, three. That, to me, is how you do a lineup. And, you know, for all this talk about, well, Juan Soto, maybe he's not comfortable in the number two spot. Well, Freddie Freeman bats in the number two spot for the Dodgers. Mookie Betts bats in the number one spot for the Dodgers. You know, it's like George Costanza once said on Seinfeld, you're not in the mood, you get in the mood, okay? I mean, you're Juan Soto, you don't like hitting in the number two spot, you get in the mood to hit in the number two spot because that's the spot for the best hitters throughout baseball. And the Dodgers do this, so the Nats should be doing this. And, you know, it's not that big of a deal that Soto's batting third instead of second, but I hope that you get the idea I'm trying to convey here. Like, you see what the Dodgers do, do as they do, okay? And the Nats, to me, need to do more of that. But that really stood out. The top three batters in the Dodgers lineup on Monday night, Mookie Betts, Freddie Freeman, Trey Turner. Very simply, the three best hitters bat over those first three spots so that those three best hitters get the most played appearances possible. Uh, Juan Soto on Monday night had a very rough inning defensively in a Dodgers three-run fourth. So Johan Adon was the Nats starting pitcher on Monday night, and Adon was not good. He allowed six runs in four and two-thirds innings. He gave up seven hits, a triple, three doubles, and three singles. He issued four walks. He did record four strikeouts, but he threw 92 pitches over the four and two-thirds innings. Uh, Adone in the top of the first allowed two runs. He gave up a leadoff single to Mookie Betts through the left side of the infield. Gave up a first pitch double to Freddie Freeman to right field. Adone then did retire the ex-nat, Trey Turner on a ground out, but a run scored for a one nothing Dodgers lead. And Adone then gave up a two-out RBI single to Will Smith, passed a charging and lunging Alcides Escobar into left field for a 2-0 Dodgers lead. Then came Adone in the top of the fourth, allowing three runs. And it was interesting because Adone in this inning retired the Dodgers' first two banners of the inning, but then allowed four consecutive Dodgers to reach base. And here is where we had the Juan Soto defensive struggles. Uh, Adone issued a two-out six-pitch walk of Cody Bellinger. Adone then gave up a two-out RBI triple to the Virginia product, Chris Taylor, on a fly ball that went off the right center field scoreboard and then off the glove of a leaping Juan Soto on the right center field warning track for a 3-0 Dodgers lead. Not an easy play for Soto to make. It's a play that you'd like for your right fielder to make, but I'm not going to kill Soto for not making that catch. Adone then issued a two-out five-pitch walk of Gavin Lux, and then came this. Adone giving up a two-out first-pitch two-run double to Mookie Betts for a 5-0 Dodgers lead on another tough defensive play for Juan Soto as he lost the ball in the twilight and then failed to make the catch while falling forward. Uh, This now has happened multiple times. A Nats outfielder losing sight of the baseball in the twilight during a game at Nationals Park. This really hasn't been a problem in the past. 
I don't know why all of a sudden this is a problem this season, but this has been a problem this season. This happened recently to Victor Robles, and this happened on Monday night to Juan Soto, and the look was not good. I mean, Juan Soto ended up falling forward. He was like belly flopping and trying to catch this baseball, and Mookie Betts wound up with a two-out first pitch, two-run double. It would end up being a three-run fourth for the Dodgers, and then a Doan in the top of the fifth gave up a run. He retired the Dodgers' first two batters of the inning, but that allowed three consecutive Dodgers to reach base. Adone issued a two-out four-pitch walk of Will Smith. Adone gave up a two-out single to Max Muncy to right field on a one-two pitch, and Adone gave up a two-out opposite field RBI double to Cody Bellinger to left center field on an 0-2 pitch for a 6-0 Dodgers lead, and then Adone got pulled from the game. So, Yohan Adone now this season has totaled nine starts. He has an ERA of 697, and he has a walks per nine innings of 5.88, which is a sky-high walk rate, averaging nearly six walks per nine innings. Look, Yoana Doan is a young pitcher. This is just his age 23 season. You need to give young starting pitchers time to develop. I am all for giving young starting pitchers time to develop. But, you know, Yoana Doan is not some highly touted prospect. And both Steven Strasburg and Joe Ross on Tuesday night are scheduled to begin minor league rehab assignments. If both of those guys are good to join the Nats at the major league level in a few weeks, and that's a big if, okay? Knowing each guy's injury history, you don't count on anything with each guy in his injury recovery here. But if, in fact, Strasburg and Ross are good to join the Nats at the major league level in a few weeks, uh, Adone very well could be one of the odd men out of the Nats rotation. Uh, Aaron Sanchez seemingly would be the other. Uh, the Nats bullpen on Monday night was mixed. Three Nats relievers combined to allow four runs in four and a third innings. We had another bad outing for Austin Voth. Why he is still pitching in this Nats bullpen, I'm not really sure. But Voth on Monday night, three runs in one and a third innings. He did get the final out in that Dodgers one-run fit, but both then allowed three runs in the top of the sixth, during which he allowed the Dodgers' first four batters of the inning to reach base. Both gave up a leadoff opposite field single to Gavin Lux to left field, despite him having been down to the count at 1.12. Both issued a six-pitch walk of Mookie Betts. Both gave up an RBI double to Freddie Freeman off the right center field scoreboard for a 7-0 Dodgers lead. Both gave up an opposite field two-run single to Trey Turner through the right side of the infield for a 9-0 Dodgers lead as Trey on Monday night finished with three runs batted in. Uh, Austin Voth in his previous outing for the Nats was even more of a mess. The 7-0 loss at the Brewers this past Friday night. Voth in that game in the bottom of the eighth allowed five runs and got just one out. Uh, Austin Voth now this season has an ERA of 9.35. Once again, what he's doing in this Nats bullpen with how poorly he's pitching, I'm not quite sure. Uh, Erasmo Ramirez on Monday night in the top of the seventh allowed a run for a 10-0 Dodgers lead on two two-out singles sandwiched around a two-out hit by pitch. Paolo Espino on Monday night was good. He tossed a perfect top of the eighth and a perfect top of the ninth. Game two for the Nats against the Dodgers at Nationals Park is on Tuesday night at 7.05. A very enticing pitching matchup, Josiah Gray versus Walker Bueller. Well, make it four wins in five games for the Orioles. Uh, the O's have had themselves a very nice last five days. Three walk-off wins, the calling up of the number one prospect in baseball per MLB Pipeline catcher Adley Rutschman, and now a win at 
the best team in the majors. Uh, the O's on Monday night won at the Major League-leading New York Yankees 6-4 in Game 1 of a three-game series and of an eight-game road trip as Joe Angel, the O's, again, were in the win column. And the Orioles, again, in the win column. Yes, Joe, the win column. We are hearing a lot from Joe Angel these days on the Al Galdi podcast. The O's this season now are 18 and 25. You know, the O's began their season 6 and 14. So the O's since the 6 and 14 start are 12 and 11. Not too shabby for a rebuilding and tanking team for which the rebuild finally is starting to bear fruit. Uh, Adley Rutschman on Monday night as the Orioles starting DH and number five batter did go 0 for 4, but uh, we on Monday got the latest rankings of the top 100 prospects in baseball per MLB pipeline. The O's now have two of the top three prospects in baseball. Rutschman is number one, and starting pitcher Grayson Rodriguez is number three. Not bad. Uh, And speaking of not being bad, Ramon Arias. uh, Now, he has been bad this season in terms of actual results, but Arias on Monday night was a force. Uh, Arias on Monday night as the Orioles starting third baseman and number seven batter, three for four with a homer, a double, and a single. Uh, Arias in an Orioles four-run third had a leadoff double despite having been down to the count at one point, one, two. Arias in the Orioles one-run sixth smashed a two-out solo homer off Yankee starter Garrett Cole, and Arias in the Orioles one-run ninth had a first pitch single. Uh, Here was O's manager Brandon Hyde during his post-game session with reporters on Monday night on Ramon Arias. Ramon's been back good all night. I mean, Ramon's been scuffling from a from a you know a stats perspective, but he's been hitting the ball hard you know for the majority of the time this year. Just hasn't had the results. And tonight he got he he got a few to he got one to go out of the park and and a couple the one down the line to left and and a huge hit you know to, to. for us to go first, Ruggie to go first to third in the, in the ninth inning. Um, so good to see Ramon get some production at the plate. I know that feels good for him because he has been grinding. I know he wants to see his numbers go up, and and uh, it's just been unfortunate luck so far this year. So hopefully that can can get his luck going in the right direction. Yeah, Ramon Arias this season has an OPS of just 616, but he had a really good night on Monday night. Uh, Austin Hayes on Monday night had another big hit. Uh, He is the Orioles' starting left fielder and number two batter. Went one for four, but the one was a one-out, two-run single in that Orioles' four-run third. And I want to mention... Trey Mancini. Mancini on Monday night as the Orioles starting right fielder and number three batter, two for four with two singles. You know, Mancini this season is only slugging 395, but he this season now has an on-base percentage of 368. That's really good. He's not hitting for power, but he is getting on base. Uh, The O's on Monday night got to Garrett Cole. Uh, He allowed five runs in eight innings, though he did have 11 strikeouts versus no walks. He is Garrett Cole, after all. Uh, But the Orioles starting pitcher on Monday night held his own. Uh, Jordan Lyles continues to be a lot better than I thought he'd be for the O's. Uh, Lyles on Monday night, four runs, three earned in six and two-thirds innings. I mean, he wasn't dominant or anything like that, but you know, especially considering who he was facing, the mighty Yankees, you take that. Four runs, three earned in six and two-thirds innings. Lyles only gave up five hits, though two of the five hits were home runs by Yankees right fielder Aaron Judge, who was having some season. Uh, Lyles also gave up 
three singles. He issued two walks and a hit by pitch, but he recorded eight strikeouts and he threw 117 pitches. How about that workload? You don't see that often these days. A starting pitcher throwing 117 pitches. Lyles threw 71 strikes versus 46 balls. Here was Brandon Hyde during his postgame session with reporters on Monday night on Jordan Lyles. Uh, just so happy with him and his performance. I mean, he was uh, going to give up a couple homers to judge, and that was pretty much it. Uh, I thought he had a really good slider, a good sinker. He had an easy six, went back out for the, in the seventh with a lot of pitches, two quick outs, and uh, just really happy with how he and the length he gave us tonight and how he threw the ball. Yeah, second time in less than a week that Jordan Lyles held his own against the mighty Yankees. Uh, Lyles in the Orioles, a 3-2 loss to the Yankees at Oriole Park at Camden Yards last Wednesday night. Three runs, two earned in seven innings. He had eight strikeouts versus no walks. Uh, Lyles now this season, nine starts, ERA of 4-10. I mean, given what Jordan Lyles had been in recent seasons, you love that he has an ERA of 4-10 over nine starts. The O's are Lyles' seventh major league team. He signed with the O's of having pitched for the Texas Rangers over the previous two seasons, 2020 and 2021. And Lyles, over those two seasons, had an ERA of 560. Okay, so 410, a lot better than 560. The O's in March signed Lyles to a one-year contract with a club option for 2023. Uh, This is his age 31 season. Orioles bullpen on Monday night was good. Felix Batista and Jorge Lopez combined for two and a third scoreless and hitless innings. Now, there was bad news for the O's on Monday, and that bad news was that another pitcher went on an injured list. Uh, The O's on Monday afternoon placed Spencer Watkins on the 15 day injured list with a right elbow contusion that he suffered in the Orioles' 7 6, 11 inning win over the Tampa Bay Rays at Oriole Park at Camden Yards. On Sunday afternoon, Watkins in that game and what ended up being a four-run raise first began the game by allowing three consecutive singles, the last of which came on a line drive off the bat of G-Man Choi on an RBI single, and that was it. Watkins was taken out of the game. So the O's are 12-11 and 11 over their last 23 games despite missing a good number of pitchers right now. Uh, the O's right now have two starting pitchers, John Means and Chris Ellis on the 60-day injured list, have another starting pitcher, Dean Kramer, and a reliever, Alexander Wells, on the 10-day injured list, and now have a starter in Spencer Watkins on the 15-day injured list. Game two for the O's at the Yankees is on Tuesday night at 7.05. Bruce Zimmerman will be the Orioles' starting pitcher. And that will do it for you and me for now. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Wednesday show, episode 322, will feature a lot on the commanders with Tuesday's OTA practice being open to the media. We should have a lot to discuss. Also, I'll talk Nationals and Orioles. Game two for the Nats against the National League leading Los Angeles Dodgers at Nationals Park is on Tuesday night at 7.05. Game two for the O's at the Major League leading New York Yankees is on Tuesday night at 7.05. Have a great rest of your Tuesday, and I'll talk to you on Wednesday. Hoyas win! 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 win!